The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Lord, I pray for this morning for the sermon that we are about to hear, the sermon that I am about to preach. God, I pray for the hearts of every single individual who will hear the words. I pray that they would have ears to hear, spiritual ears that can be provided only by the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, that we would have a desire to respond that can only be produced by your work. And Lord, I pray that this morning as I proclaim the words that you would give me the ability to speak clearly and accurately and truthfully and persuasively and compassionately as we go through the word of God step by step. I pray, Lord, that the people here who know you would be filled with a fiery passion for who you are because of the word preached this morning. And I ask that those who do not know you would be convinced of your great holiness and of your glory. And they might see themselves accurately in light of who you are. Lord, I pray that this would be their day of salvation. God, we pray for your grace in every aspect of this service. I ask that you would please do much more work than we can even imagine by your Holy Spirit's presence in this place. And Father, I pray that you would give me strength to say all of these things with clarity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many of you are probably wondering what book of the Bible we're going to start this morning. If you've been around the church for very long at all, you'll know that we preach through a book, verse by verse, one step at a time until we get through to the end of the book, and by God's grace, Lord willing, until that book gets through to us. It's a very healthy thing for the regular diet of the church to be that kind of exegetical preaching. However, it can also be helpful to zoom out to a larger scale from time to time to see something about the grander meta narrative of Scripture. So, for the next seven sermons that I'm going to preach, we're going to be doing a series called The Big Picture. These sermons are designed to trace one of the major themes all the way from the beginning of Scripture throughout the entire Bible. Each one of these seven sermons is going to find its origin in Genesis, and it will find its conclusion in Revelation as we look at the major things going on that God wants us to understand when we come to the Bible. So this is going to be a systematic approach, a 30,000-foot examination of what is in the Scripture. What are the main takeaways that God has for us from His Word? So in order to introduce this series, I'm going to first present to you four of the main reasons why I'm going to preach this series to you. Now, there are a lot more. I actually narrowed it down from 15, but if I would have used all of those, that would have been the first sermon. So here's the first four reasons why I think this is going to be very valuable for us. First, because I want you to be competent to read the scripture on your own. I'll never forget when I was growing up, I was in ninth grade, I believe, I went to the Roman Catholic Church. I had left my parents' very unhealthy church, and I went and visited there at the Roman Catholic Church, thinking they're the first ones, surely they know what they're doing. And I went and I talked to Father Scaletti, and I asked him the question, what does this mean in the Bible? And he took my Bible from me, he closed it, and he put it on the table in front of him and said, don't read that. 
I want you to know what the Word of God teaches you. I want you to know how to come to any passage of Scripture and have a grid through which to understand it. Many Christians, even faithful, godly Christians, have a very difficult time studying parts of their Bibles. And part of the reason is that some parts are confusing. Some of the reason it's confusing or foreign to us is because it can be a daunting thing to see the riches of God's entire plan. We're just looking at pieces, and it's a big thing to see his entire story. So when we come to God's word, we want to do so faithfully and carefully and appropriately. We have many people in this church, many people with various gifts, um, you could talk to each one of you. You're all unique. You have abilities and skills that I don't have, and neither does anyone else in the body. If I want to know about running, I'm going to go talk to Melanie. She's the runner of the church. If I want to know about something to do with sound equipment, I'm going to talk to Dan Herman. If I want to know about video equipment, I'm going to talk to, to Gene. If, if I want to know about the law, I'm going to ask Ray. And if I want to know about the Mets, I'm going to ask basically any of you except for me and my wife. But it's not right to think that pastors are the only ones who are supposed to have a corner on the market in terms of biblical knowledge. We are not supposed to be the experts of the church when it comes to knowing our Bibles. Although we are supposed to know as pastors and carefully know how to shepherd the people of God through the word, you are also called to know God's word well. Each one of you is called to be like the Bereans who carefully examine the scripture for themselves. So I hope that this series will help you to see some of the big picture pieces of the Bible and see how they fit together so that when you open the pages of scripture, you know what that particular passage means in terms and in the scope of redemption history. So I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit is going to be the one who gives you understanding as I present a bunch of different hermeneutical principles for how to study your Bible. You'll see those implicitly as we go through these seven sermons. The second reason that I really want to preach through these sermons for you is because I want you to know that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Jesus told the Pharisees in John 5.39, the central hermeneutic, in my opinion, of the whole of Scripture, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, he's talking about the Old Covenant, the Old Testament passages, it is they that bear witness about me. I doubt that most of you have any problem with me saying that every verse in the Bible is about Jesus. However, I have a feeling that for many Christians in this room, you have a difficult time understanding how we see Christ in all of Scripture. And I've been praying that this series would help to develop a richer understanding in this congregation in terms of seeing the forest, not just the trees. I want you to recognize the beauty and the majesty and the authority of Jesus on every single page of your Bible. Third, I want you to know and understand the newness of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 tells us that Christ is the mediator of a new and better covenant because it has been enacted on better promises. 
It's truly impossible to comprehend the glorious nature of the new covenant without at least partially understanding the old. And it is also impossible to delight in the joys of the new covenant unless you are, or if you are attempting to in some way live under the old. If you are trying to honor God in ways that God is not desirous to be honored, then you are not serving him the way he desires to be served and you are not worshiping according to the scripture. So part of the purpose of this series is to help develop an instinctual understanding of how the old covenant and new covenant fit together at the very root of many christian issues lies the question of how does the law work how does it fit together in the life of a believer how does the old testament worship relate to ours there's a myriad of questions surrounding this kind of thought that become very simple when you can piece the bible together appropriately so let me be clear I'm not simply attempting here to convince your mind of these things so that I can make you smarter. I want you to savor God's grace. I want you to taste and see that he is good, not just initially before you are saved, but every time you come to the word, see that he is indeed good. And I want you to revel in his mercies. I want you to bask in the radiance of his kindness. And it becomes so much easier to do that when you see him rightly as he has presented himself in the Bible. Fourth, I want you to see more clearly than you ever have that the gospel is central to all of Christian life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul presents a very quick synopsis of the gospel. He tells the people that this message he delivered to them, this central message, is of first importance. In other words, this information is the priority of the church. It's the clarion call of the Bible. It is the battle cry of all believers. This gospel, this simple truth, is what is at the heart of everything that we do as Christians. So the gospel is the message that we must know in order to be saved. I think you would all say amen to that. But it's also at the epicenter of all of our Christian growth. There is never, and mark my words, if you don't believe me, test this and try it for yourself. There is never a single New Testament command that is grounded in any other reasoning than the gospel. Why should you love? Because Christ first loved you. You can go through and see every single element of Christian living being grounded and rooted in the call to know and understand more fully what Christ has done for us. That is what motivates us. That is what cultivates us. That is what propagates spiritual maturity in us. It is the heartbeat of the true Christian to have the gospel pounding within them. It is important for us to see that it is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. So I hope that this series will impress upon your heart the need to always live your life at the foot of the cross. So it's only fitting that our first sermon in the series is all about the gospel. So let's begin at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Now before we ever get to the action, before we ever get to the fact that he created, it is vital that we begin with the premise that this book is ultimately and primarily about God. And as simple and obvious as that sounds, that's not the way that most people read the Bible. This is not a self-help book. 
this is not just a bunch of poetry. It contains poetry, beautiful poetry. It contains the most accurate history in the history of the world. And it has impeccable wisdom for life, but there's much more to it than that. If you're just going to the Bible to get a pick-me-up or to get some smart, to get a little smarter or to be able to win an argument, or even if your goal is just to become more wise, then you're missing something. You're falling far short of the purpose of Scripture. The Scripture is where God has presented himself to us. He has unveiled his nature. He has unveiled his character and his attributes and even some of his workings in the universe. And the one shining truth that rings out above all the others when we talk about God is his utter limitless holiness. Holiness is the essence at the center of every one of God's attributes. His love is a holy love. His wrath is holy wrath. And on and on we see holiness is truly his attribute of attributes. But as we progress through the scripture, we're going to see that the shining glory of God's holiness is contrasted against man's total sinfulness. These two truths are the necessary backing. They are the starting blocks of the gospel. So here's how we're going to begin taking our rapid-fire tour through the Bible this morning. We're going to very briefly examine six familiar Old Testament events that show man's sinfulness basically up against the backdrop of God's holiness. And then we're going to see how Jesus changed everything at the cross. So buckle in because we're going to keep we're going to move pretty quick. So we begin with our very first example. You guessed it. In the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. What was happening in the garden of Eden? God was dwelling with Adam and Eve. A holy God dwelling with his creation in perfect unity. This is an incredible beautiful picture. But then the serpent tempted Eve and convinced her that she would be like God if she ate the fruit of the forbidden tree. Eve broke the one commandment that they were told not to do. And then she passed the fruit to her husband, who it says was with her, and he ate it too. And immediately everything changed in a cataclysmic spiritual moment unlike any other in all of history. When Adam ate that fruit... He condemned all of his children to be born as children of wrath by nature and by choice. And immediately the foreign feeling of shame rushed over them. We see in Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 that it says, Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But why were they ashamed? They were married, right? They were the only two people alive. Why were they ashamed? It's because they were not alone. Because shame is going to be more evident as what we see in the next verse, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. God's here. We can't let him see us like this. We have to be covered. We have to be hidden. Shame is the natural response of a sinful creature when they realize that they can be seen by a holy creator. And God sees everyone. God sees everything. He sees you. 
He knows your deepest thoughts. He knows every action. There is nothing you have hidden from him. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So what do we do? We respond to God just like Adam and Eve. We run. We hide. We don't want God to see us. And more accurately, we become acutely aware of God's holiness and therefore we suppress that truth by delighting in our unrighteousness. As Romans 1 teaches us, we exchange the truth about God for lies so that we can pretend he doesn't see us. But God always knew where they were hiding and he sought them out and he punished them. But even in the midst of their judgment, God showed them a kindness that foreshadows something great that is to come. Genesis 3:21 And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God cast them out of his presence because a holy God cannot dwell with unholy sinners. But he did give them a covering. So let's jump forward now 10 generations to our second Old Testament picture of God's holiness and of man's sinfulness. We see that the world has taken on attributes after sinful Adam. They have begun to live out what it looks like to be in complete rebellion and rejection against God. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 we read the natural result of their wickedness. It says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Before we move move forward or begin pointing fingers at these antediluvian people, please know this. That's exactly how the Bible also describes you and I. Allow me just to present a few of the words that are used to describe us throughout the scripture. This is just a portion. We are called abominations. We are called crooked, corrupt, displeasing, detestable, blasphemous, twisted, sinful, evil, wicked, immoral, iniquitous, unjust, ungrateful, unfaithful, unrighteous, ungodly, unloving. And to cap all of that off and to summarize it with one word that encapsulates all the others, we are called unholy. And God is holy. So when the camera of Scripture pans away from these wicked people and turns to Noah... You should not immediately begin thinking, finally, somebody I can relate to. Look, there's me in the story. It's Noah. No, that's not how it works. You are to see that you and I are just like those people who were crushed in the flood. We are the ones who are deserving of the waters of judgment. And because God is holy, what did he do? He sent a flood that destroyed nearly 100% of the world's population with continent-shattering brutality. He crushed his enemies. So perhaps you would be tempted to think that after the flood, everything would just be renewed and reset and be back to the way things were in the Eden, in Eden before the fall. All the bad people are dead now, right? Wrong. Because immediately after the flood, what does Noah do? He gets sinfully drunk. What does his son do? His son dishonors him. And a few generations later, they're building a tower to escape and show themselves glorious before God. So how is all this possible? We find the answer in the covenant that God made with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verse 21. 
And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. First of all, why is this aroma pleasing to God? Why does God delight in the smell of these burnt offerings? Is it because he likes cooked meat? No, it's because it was pointing forward to the true sacrifice that would be made for sin. But notice what God promised. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For, which by the way, just means because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This seems backwards. Normally, you would think that the fact that people are infected with sin from their infancy would cause God to want to curse them. It would cause God to want to send another flood. But because the promise of a true coming sacrifice, God established a promise that he would have divine forbearance. He was going to let people sin. He was going to let you and I sin. We're not getting away with it. But he is giving patience. He is showing forbearance. Which leads us to now our third Old Testament picture. Moses. There are dozens of highlights from the life of Moses. I mean, think about this man. Think about what this single individual encounter. We'll just consider a few. He most assuredly led one of the most incredible lives in all of human history. He survived a genocide as an infant. He was raised by his national enemies in their own palace as a prince. He taught, he talked to God. Very few people have ever done this. And I don't think anyone else has ever done so in the form of a burning bush. God gave him his most holy name. He called down 10 plagues on the most powerful king on the planet until finally the king let his people go. Then when they were hemmed in against the Red Sea, what does he do? By the power of God, he splits that thing right in two. And then what happens later? He strikes a rock and water comes out of it in the middle of a desert. We could add so many more items to the list. This man's life was fascinating. Yet I have no doubt that if we were to ask Moses himself, what is the most glorious moment of your earthly life? I guarantee he would tell us about what we read in Exodus 33 and 34. This is the most intimate encounter that Moses ever had with God. Exodus 33:20 Moses said, "Please." You hear the the desire in his voice, "Please show me your glory." And God said to him, "I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Why couldn't he see God and live? Because God is holy. And sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. So God hymns Moses into the cleft of the rocks and he passes by him and he allows Moses to see just a glimpse of his glory. And Moses was so affected by it that when he descended from the mountain, his face was literally radiating and shining with a reflection of God's glory. And the people became so fearful, they forced him to cover his face with a veil. But what I want you to see in all of this is the inability for even the most upright man on the earth in this day 
The inability for him to even look at the face of God. If you locked eyes with the Lord, you would be utterly destroyed before you could even process what you were seeing. Sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Old Testament picture number four. We continue to move throughout the redemptive picture of history until we reach the early days of the Israelite kingdom. David is seated on the throne. He has honored the Lord through his life. We see many of the great victories of David in his, his early days. And he seemed like the ideal ruler. He seemed like a contrast to Saul, the righteous king who would lead his people in righteousness. But the best of men are men at best. And David was no exception to that rule. He coerced a married woman into a sexual relationship and he impregnated her. He had her husband killed to cover it up. Then he, he thought he got away with it. He, he thought he was scot-free. But God sees everything and God knows everything. And he sent the prophet Nathan to confront David and David was cut to the heart. And it seems like David was wallowing in the muck of all of this sin and all of this disgusting, putrid evil for a time without even feeling the disgusting griminess of it all until he was confronted by the word of the Lord. When the word of God confronts the human heart, there is a kind of conviction that leads in a watershed moment in one of two directions. For David, it was conviction that led him to seek repentance. For some, it is conviction that leads us to run from God, to want him to see nothing of us. We don't want him in our lives. But David realized how utterly filthy he was before God. In Psalm 51, chapter 2 through 4, we read David's song of repentance and we hear him say these words. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He says this because he knows that sin, all sin, every sin, his sin, your sin, my sin, every sin, is ultimately and primarily against a holy God. God was the center of his target when he was attacking others. His adultery was a wholesale rejection of God's standards. We could go through every bit of this process and see how, even though, yes, he did sin against Bathsheba, and he did, and Uriah, and he did, and the entire nation, and he did, and in fact, the entire world that was supposed to see the glory of the kingdom of Israel as a representation of God, he did that. But all of that ultimately was a sin against a holy God. And when David is reminded that God is watching when he is reminded that God sees him, the impurity that had been infesting his life became more disgusting to them to him than he could even bear. So later in verse 10, he cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When we are away from God, when we are separated from God, when we are distinct from God, we are so because he is holy and we are not. We are impure, and he is 100% pure. Which brings us now to our fifth Old Testament picture for the day, the prophet Isaiah. You remember the prophet Isaiah? This, this book, this massive 
chapter volume of our Old Testament filled with truth about the glorious nature of God and his relationship with the people of the Old Covenant and his promises of a new covenant. Well, in chapter 6, he is caught up in a vision which shows him the heavenly throne room. Jesus was seated there, high and lifted up. I can't even imagine the glory of this, this moment. And the angels were surrounding his throne, showering him with praises. And what are they singing? You know the words. The only thing repeated three times in all of Scripture to show the great emphasis. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. And when Jesus would speak, the entire throne room would shake because heaven itself can barely contain the magisterial power and authority of its own king. And when Isaiah was confronted with this thrice holy God, all he could do was cry out curses on himself. I imagine Isaiah gasping and stuttering the words found in verse 5 as he's filled with terror standing before the holy presence of God. He says, Woe! is me for i am lost for i am a man of unclean lips and i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts then the angel gave him a picture of the atonement he took an ember pulled right out of the white hot eternal throne of god and he takes it over and he puts it on his lips Once again, sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Isaiah was desperately in need of something to atone for his sins. But why? Because he recognized how guilty he was as he stood before the perfect justice of the God of justice himself. God was merciful to Isaiah. But each one of us stand in our own guilt the guilt of our sin. When we stand before the bar of heaven, there is no way we could ever plead innocence. There is evidence on every side that we fall short of God's glory. Which brings us now to our sixth and final picture from the Old Testament. We see Hosea. Here is a a really bizarre story of a prophet. I mean, God literally told this man to go marry a prostitute. And the picture that God is painting and that Hosea is representing God. Hosea himself is to be a picture of God. And God is showing that Israel is representative of a prostitute. As you can imagine, this was not a flattering prophecy for the people of Israel to hear. They didn't like it. They didn't receive it well. It was basically God's way of saying to them, I married you even though I knew already you were wicked. I'm not surprised by your rebellion. I'm not surprised by your sin. I'm not surprised by your adultery. I know exactly who you are. I knew before I married you. I knew what I was getting into. And Hosea and the woman named Gomer proceed to have three children. Each of their names operate as a prophetic tool from the Lord. But the last one's name literally means not mine. You are not mine. Hosea chapter 1 verse 9. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Can you imagine being at the dinner table, sitting there and talking to your child and saying, hey, one who's not mine, can you pass me the bread? Every single time he called his son's name, he was reminded of how unfaithful his wife was. Then Gomer 
continuing in her unfaithfulness, ran away. And through some unknown circumstances, she ends up being sold at a slave auction. And who is it that buys her back? It's Hosea. At great cost to himself. And even though everyone could look at that situation and say, just leave her. Just leave her. She has sinned so greatly against you. Even though everyone would look at this story and say, that's reasonable. What does he do? He goes and he buys her back. Many of the prophets highlight the adulterous relationship of the people of Israel to God. I love, I love Scottish preachers for a lot of reasons. Usually they're really clear on the scripture. They, they hammer home the gospel. Um, one of the things that's really evident that's really interesting, though, is the Scottish accent. When they say adultery and when they say idolatry, it sounds exactly the same. And that's exactly how the Old Testament presents this. Idolatry is to God a form of adultery. This is a living picture that God has set something up to design to show us that God is upright and God is holy and he is in a relationship with unholy, unrighteous, undeserving people. And the woman is detestable. This woman is wicked. She is quite evil. Yet the picture is designed to show that God's love is a complete, perfect, holy love. So this cracks open the door ever so slightly to see forward into the good news. And I hope that you've seen glimpses of the good news all along the way this morning. But without coming to the coming of the Messiah, we would still be in our sins and we would still be in the bad news. If that were the case, we would be all doomed to our own judgment. As Psalms 130 verse 3 says, If, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God counted our sins against us, we've got no hope. But here we come to the good news. With Adam and Eve, we saw that they were naked and they felt shame. Later, we would see a true and better Adam who comes, the son of God himself, to be born of the seed of the woman and would live a perfect life. Yet he who was perfect and sinless, who never broke the commands of the the Lord, he would be stripped naked and he would be led to a cross and he would die the most undignified death you could ever imagine. He was mocked and he was ridiculed and he was spit upon. And as Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, which means thinking nothing of the shame and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. The good news for shame-filled sinners like you and me is that Jesus came and he took our shame. And in return, he has graciously given us his righteousness. Every one of us has attempted at some point in our lives to appease God by doing something that we thought would cover up our shame. But our good works are not sufficient as a covering. They're just a bunch of fig leaves. God looked at them and says, You need more clothes. I'm going to make you better clothes. And God made a sacrifice in the garden. He killed an animal and he covered them. But God has made for us the perfect sacrifice and given us the perfect covering. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3 verse 9 when he speaks about being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Or as the old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Clothed in his righteousness alone, he says later, faultless, 
to stand before the throne. Clothed in his righteousness. I have no need for shame. But what about the wrath of God that we saw in the story of Noah? Well, even in the Old Testament, there were prophetic rumblings that there would be one who comes that would be pierced for our transgressions. He was to be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We say there's an unfair trade taking place here. He gets all of the judgment. Earlier, we talked a little bit about the forbearance of God. But the unbridled fury of God's anger was vented spiritually in a way far beyond what we saw taking place during the physical flood during Noah's day. And it was vented and poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross. God the Father punishing his own son. And if you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you are just as safe in the judgment as the ark was during the flood. Those eight people, those eight souls left alive in the ark survived. How? Because they were in the ark. And if you are in Christ, that is the only way to survive the judgment that is to come. But how can sinful people like us be with God? Won't we be destroyed like we saw with Moses? Can't we? We can't look at his face, can we? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 speaks about the hardness of heart of the Israelites that they had towards God. And it speaks about how they made Moses wear a veil to cover his shining face. And at the end of that passage, Paul writes, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 16 through 18, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Do you see the picture he's talking about here? Moses, you can't look at my glory or you'll die. And he tells us, I want you to see my glory. Looking upon the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. When someone turns to the Lord, there is a radical difference. We are able to remove the veil and see the glory of the Lord with freedom. And it is the viewing of the Lord that causes us to be transformed. And how does this happen? Later, a few verses later, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, we read, For God said, for God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, speaking of creation, right? Let there be light has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where is the glory of God seen? In the face of Jesus Christ. And that is what we are called to behold every day. But even if we see the Lord, won't we still feel the weight of our filthiness like David did? In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we read a list of all sorts of sinners who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Included on that list are some of the sins that David himself committed. But just like David, we are to call out to be cleansed by the Lord. We see that at the cross, Jesus was able to procure our cleansing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 says, After that huge list of sinners, these horrible wicked people, he says, And such were some of you. And that is good news. Such were some of us. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and by the Spirit of our God. But even if we're cleansed, won't we still bear the the guilt of our former sins? Absolutely not. When Jesus went to the cross, He paid it all. His final words on the cross, His singular word with His final call to the Father, He said, to Telestai, it's finished. It's finished. The record of debt has been paid. You and I have a record of debt that could not be tabulated with every computer ever created. Our debt to God is more than we could ever imagine, much less what we could pay. And before knowing Christ, we could only be found guilty by holy judge. There is no other hope. But hear the words of Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, and let your heart rejoice. It says, And you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It's gone. Where did it go? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's gone because it was paid for by the blood of our Savior. In Hosea, we saw that we are depicted as slaves. This is not a kind representation of us. We are rebellious runaways who have been captured by the evil one. Jesus expounds on the thought of slavery in John 8, 34, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But when one comes to Christ, there's a transition that takes place. Romans chapter 6, verses 17 through 18 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of, of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, it's no longer your slave master. There is a transition that has taken place. Now you have become slaves of righteousness. You have a new master now. If you are in Christ, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. You are no longer a slave to sin and the the flesh and the world and the devil. Now you are a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And how is all this possible? Because Jesus Christ, the Holy One, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Or as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you don't know Christ, I call upon you today to repent and believe in this good news. And if you do know the Lord, I call on you to repent of not being amazed at the goodness of this gospel. As promised, we're going to close out this morning in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, we see that heaven is still singing its famous song. The angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. But after the cross, the angels have added a few verses to their famous hymn. I'll close by reading just a few of them from random verses in chapter 5. They're singing in heaven, Worthy are you, speaking of Christ, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Heaven never gets over it. They look to the cross and they never get past it. For eternity, we are going to be holding fast to this gospel message. So don't tire of it now. Stand firm on it. Live by it. And by God's grace, we'll grow to be more like Christ, being conformed into His image by standing firm on His person and His work. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You that heaven never gets over the gospel. I thank You that they remind themselves and worship You forever and ever based upon the glorious work of Your Son on the cross. Lord, I pray that we would never tire of it. I pray that we would never think little of it. I pray that you would please let this good news shape us every single day of our lives. Please use this message today to save the lost. Please use it to comfort the afflicted. I pray that you would use it to afflict the comfortable. Please, Lord, cause us to be more like Christ because of what we have learned today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.